Welcome to the Journey to Justice podcast. This is episode 17 of our Economic Injustice series, where we explore individual and collective action for economic justice in the UK and dive deep into causes of wealth inequality. In this episode, our speakers talk about theatre and class and a redesigned economy. You will hear from Luke Aaron, who tells his story of being from a rural working class area where there was a lack of access to jobs, housing support and opportunities. Now as a drama student in London, Luke's experiences inform his work. He uses theatre as a representational tool to give voice to those facing economic injustice. Hi, my name's Luke. I am a working class drama student at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. Um, and I'm currently looking into class and theatre and class and the rise of the far right in working class communities or white working class communities like my own. Well, often I, when I'm looking at class, I acknowledge the social, cultural and the economic um, factors in that. Let's look at my own experience. Uh, my mum um, struggles to hold down a job as a carer very often. And my uh, brother, who has uh, special needs, also struggles to hold down a job for various, various reasons. Um, but one of, the, one of the biggest injustices I feel in that situation is as soon as my brother sort of left school and college, turned 18, it almost felt like he dropped off the system. You know, he used to have a certain amount of welfare support um, because of his condition. But somewhere along the line, that's been removed because he's now an adult. Therefore, he can make his own choices and decisions. He just dropped off the system, you know, and and um, there's so much around that. There's so much anger. There's so much alienation, frustration in that one story. Um, yeah, so I grew up in the Forest of Dean, a very uh, unique area of England. Um, with a very unique identity, uh, I would argue its own little microculture. It's uh, oh, it's got its own little accent. It's got its own little dialogue, um, uh, language. Sorry, dialect. Um, nestled away somewhere between Wales and England. Um, if you ask people in the forest, you know, often they might say, "I'm not English, not Welsh. I'm Forest." Got their own little ancient laws there as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, I grew I grew up on a little council estate. Um, it was all right. My mum and dad didn't really own anything. It was all sort of borrowed or um, finance or things like that on very much a welfare state sort of upbringing. Not afraid to admit it. There was benefits in the family. Um, unfortunately, my dad took his own life on Christmas Eve um, because the family eventually broke down um, and left my mum on her own, me and my brother, and then my mum's mental health, unfortunately, without disclosing anything, suffered a lot from that. And consequently, more things happened. Um, so I sort of found, I, I've, write, I've written in my dissertation at the moment, I sort of found myself um, confronted with a, a world with so many questions. I was questioning my own position in it, you know, what why, why are my friends' experiences different to mine? Why is it difficult to get a, a council house? Because we had to try and move from one to another because of a very dark situation in the family blame and what with the death and everything. And, uh, you know, the jobs opportunities in that rural area, you know, I, I would travel 48 minutes on a bus to get to college, <laughs> let alone to where the jobs were at. Um, especially in the forest scene as well. My own mental health started to, to be impacted by that. But uh, it, in terms of how that's informed my personal views of economic injustice, I wouldn't say it's a first hand, it, it is an experience of it. I always say I'm an experience of class. I'm not the working class. I'm an experience of class. Uh, others might have a different experience with more or less um, disparity there but it's 
it's it's rooted in me i suppose it's part of me now it's something i actively try and bring into my work at uni it's 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 it is part of my i don't know academic term positionality is my part of my identity i suppose um facing economic injustice um, and doing my best to to climb away from it and also hold on to it because you can't just run away from everything it's not about escaping where i'm from as, as they might say um it's given me a very um personal perspective on it it's uh something you carry into a room that other people might ne not necessarily even acknowledge or think about and but it does inform doesn't inform my work I, I find myself deleting far more sentences in my dissertation at the moment than writing because there's <laughs> so much trying to come out and i'm trying to harness it down and hold it in and, um, and as a theater practitioner as well it, I've said it informs my practice, but um, the, the pieces of work that I try and make or I'm interested in seem to have a knowledge of what's going on, if that makes sense, and relate to me. So I've experienced a lot of class warfare between working class people themselves, and that's something that needs to be talked about and healed and bridged before I start saying, oh, your poverty is more or less or your experience might be cities london urban environments have what they call high social mobility whereas in rural communities that's not necessarily um something that, that comes easily even in london for example pretty much all major english or british national theater organizations for example base themselves there the national youth theater being one um and so that will in that geography will inevitably impact how those resources can reach rural communities and how you you know you feel isolate you feel the isolation in the far city you i feel my class when i go to london i feel my rurality when i go to london all the time i've never quite managed to adjust to it that's um on me as much as it is on london um but i, I can also say that in the Far Sardine, for example, my little council estate, as bleak as boring as it was, you know, especially the second council house with um, no carpets in it. And I'm pretty sure someone said it used to be some sort of temporary accommodation for the Americans in the war, but they never knocked it down. They just put pebble dash on it. <laughs> but, um, you know, outside of that house, I had thousands of acres of ancient royal woodland. And if it wasn't for that, I don't know where I would be right now because that was my healing. That was my escape from whatever I was, was happening. From the deterministic features of that house, you know, the situation, I had a huge woodland there. So that woodland might, in my experience, be um, what uh, art resources might have been for people in the city. Um, who might also be in council estates and things like that as well, but um, it, it's very different experience. You're you're absolutely right. You know, lack of transportation, lack of access to jobs. You can't just get on a tube. You can't just get on a bus. You can't walk down the road and there'd be five hundred shops on your way. You know, I, I mean, and I don't even know if there was a theatre in the Forest of Dean district at all. Like that wasn't related to a college. You know, in the whole district. So, um, at least not one I was aware of. In my experience, I walk through the doors of Royal Central, I see a chandelier, I see golden handlebars, I see lots of fun, funny accents that sound like the Queen. I see an etiquette, I see a language, and I am not prepared, or at least at the start, I was not prepared to translate that language to work out my place in that so I felt my class very immediately I also carried a lot of my own snobbery in there because when you come from an isolated rural community your head tells you that things have run the way other people might have an opinion of use so there is a bit of a, a clash there micro aggressions whatever when I talk about the fact that I'm working class in an arts environment people are not really sure what I mean. 
I mean, I would say 98% of the people in the room would inevitably be middle class. Um, and in, in the arts in particular, female as well. So working class itself as a term has become a bit of a, a nonsense, really. It doesn't really mean anything to many people. Does it mean I have a job? Does it mean I might be less wealthy than other people? Does it mean that I might be racist? Because sometimes that's what the working class is being associated with in, you know, in, in various media or various opinions. So without that word to identify my situation, but again, there's no lens of class at which to analyze things. So that will filter through in what you see on stage, that will filter through in the people who are in those productions, the people who are making that work, the people who are making those roles. Um, and as I said at the moment, I'm, I'm trying to work out theatre's role potentially in perpetuating the conditions that give way to the rise of the far right as a representational tool. Like these are discussions that, again, if, if you don't have the experience of it or, or you don't realise what's going on, they're not really going to happen. So hopefully I'm bringing something new to the table there. Um, but as I said before, when I was talking about my experience in the Forest of Dean, all of those factors that I was talking to you about, the proximity to the poverty line, the struggle with social housing, the universal credit, the benefits and all of that rubbish, um, that accumulated in anger, in questions, in um, feeling of being what they call, often term me the left behind working classes. There's often that term. Um, and that is exploited by far right organizations quite often. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where I am with theater at the moment, arts and class, what a, what a whole, what a topic, but there's also resistance coming. There is also forms of resistance as well, as there always has been theater just to add that as well you know um and if you if you want to start somewhere easy just have a look at victoria woods stuff there's some brilliant stuff in there to get you get you, you get yourself warm um what was i listening to the other day pretend to be northern was a song that she did with judy waters and it, it captures so much about public opinion and this idea of an underclass that are responsible for their own decisions and their own plight um and middle class artists who dominate theater even trying to pretend to be working class or associate themselves with trying to be working at class when in fact unfortunately they might not qualify as working class um from my understanding and definitions of it um what a phenomenon that was that's do I see that at uni sometimes? I, I, I'm not going to unpack that in this interview, a bit too controversial, but uh, you have now people at the very bottom of the spectrum being impacted by the repercussions of lockdown, by the repercussions of our society changing from COVID in many ways. Um, this means, you know, that people who are already already on fragile foundations can easily drop through the cracks. I haven't, for my own mental sake, I think, a bit ignorant of me, but I haven't looked too closely into this. But I would not be surprised if the figures and the truths in many in many cases, in many stories, particularly in cities, are um, quite gruesome. If I know anything from my dad's experience, it doesn't take very much to push someone over the edge when they're already in a very fragile position. So the thought of a global pandemic changing society as we are at the moment is frightening, personally. Um, and I'm not trying to say that people are being, you know, selfish and ignorant. I'm not trying to 
to suggest anything like that. I'm just saying like, hang on, like, let's think about the people facing economic injustice, the people at the bottom of the bottom, you know, they struggle to get in this industry as it is, you know, let alone they're in this, this industry collapsing because it's not getting enough help. It will recover. It always does. But when it does, when it does rebuild, like what, what a great opportunity to start opening gates in different ways to rebuild in, in, in an open, more fair way, applying lens of class and economic injustice to that as well. Maybe that's another thing we, you need to do as well. You, know, you need to acknowledge your own class privilege, for example, your own economic privilege before you can look at economic injustice. Because when you do that, it's not, it's not a job to feel guilt. It's a job to feel like, aha, I can now see what my situation is and how this differs to other people. And then you can ask yourself questions, can't you? Okay, what happens in a COVID pandemic when I lose my job? Do I still have a house? Do I have a family house to go to? Do I have people to talk to? Do I have a CV? and job experience and all this and education in order to make a different path. Maybe you do, but what happens if you don't? What happens if you don't? In this episode, A Redesigned Economy, we hear from the Deputy Director of the Joseph Roundry Foundation, Helen Bernard, who analyses what makes a society economically just, how the causes of poverty interlink with employment, housing and social security, the need for a redesigned economy and the housing market, the effect of the pandemic on low-income families and what the recovery should look like and what form of effective activism should take. So I think an economically just society is one where everyone can thrive, where everyone can make a decent living and have a secure home. So it's one where nobody is locked in poverty. It's one where everybody can access a job where they are treated with respect and dignity, where their skills are valued and where they can make a good living. I think it's one where you have an education system which equips all of our young people to be able to build a good life for themselves, to have choices and opportunities. And I think it's one where people are not held back by racism, sexism, homophobia, where disabled people and carers can play a full part in the economy, can work and be supported, and one where people are not held down at the bottom because of who they are or where they come from. Large parts of the economy of the UK is designed in ways that hold people back. So we have a lot of jobs at the bottom end of our labour market, which are low paid, are insecure, where people can't get enough hours, where you can't get training or progress. And the people who are trapped in those jobs are disproportionately those from some groups and some places. So people from black and some ethnic minority groups, particularly black Pakistani and Bangladeshi groups, are disproportionately to, likely to be stuck in those low paid jobs disabled people, single parents, are also disproportionately trapped at that end of the labour market. And there are some parts of the country where the local economy is dominated by those low quality jobs. And what all that means is that once you are somebody who's in that low quality work, it is incredibly difficult to jump into a better bit of the labour market. Once you're in those jobs, employers don't invest in you, it's hard to get training, it's hard to see a career path, and more and more people end up in that bit of the labour market for the whole of their working lives. So they are struggling to stay afloat, they're struggling to keep up with the bills, they're constantly at risk of falling behind with the rent and homelessness. At the same time, you've got an economy where the housing market is not designed to give people easy access to a secure home that they can afford. So if you look at the last couple of decades, what we've seen is people having less and less access to low cost rented social homes. More and more people on low incomes are stuck in the private rented sector, which is expensive, it's insecure, it's often not very good quality. And what we've seen is that's really undermined the gains from things like a rising minimum wage. So people are working, their wages might be rising, but their rents are rising and it's eating up more and more of their income. So people have to cut back on food to try and keep up in, with the rent. 
and it's also contributed to a surge in homelessness because of the way that part of our economy, the housing market, is designed. And then you have a social security system and the function of that should be to be like an anchor. So when you're getting battered by these currents of low pay and illness and disability and prejudice, it helps you stay steady, it helps you stay, stay okay. But that's been weakened by a decade of cuts and freezes. So what we've seen before COVID was more and more people pulled into this situation of constant insecurity, constantly having to go without essentials because they can't get a decent job and an affordable home and the support that all of us should be able to rely on within our economy. The structure of our economy and the kinds of jobs we have in the economy have changed over the last 20 years or so. And so what we've seen is the growth and growth of service sectors. So that means the kind of the big sectors where the volume of jobs comes from. So that is retail, it's shops and so on. It's accommodation, hospitality, it's people who are working in cafes and restaurants and pubs and hotels. And it's also the kind of jobs where you get delivery drivers, warehousing jobs, um, but it's also the care sector, particularly the social care sector. So people who are working in care homes or supporting older or disabled people in their homes. Now, all of those sectors make up a large proportion of the number of jobs in our economy, but they are all sectors which are dominated by lots of low paid jobs. Um, quite a lot of them actually are dominated by businesses and employers where their business model is actually about low pay, high turnover. It's not about training staff. It's about competing on cost rather than value, for instance, or customer service. And they're sectors where you don't really see career paths. So if you go back 20 or 30 years, if you're somebody who went into a low paid job, in a lot of sectors like manufacturing, there's a pretty good chance you can work your way up through the training and the structures in that sector to a better paid job. So by the time you are maybe starting a family, you're needing a higher income, you've got up to that level. What we see now is people go into, you know, your first job after school or college or whatever, it's in a shop or a restaurant, and then you basically stay in that sector. And there aren't a lot of pay differentials. It's quite hard to work your way up to a better paid job. If you're somebody, larger, larger numbers of people are disabled, have health conditions or are caring, if you're someone who needs flexible work because you're balancing work and care or work and health, again, that holds you back because what you often find is that if you want to move up, you have to give up the flexibility that you had at a lower level. So you get lots of people, I mean, particularly women and disabled people, but more and more men as well, who are having to trade off caring for someone they love with having a decent job that they can actually get, afford the essentials, keep up with the rent. So we've had the, the economy has become structured in that way where people are held in this quite big bottom part of the economy. Then you do also have the more kind of high profile traditional gig economy jobs, which and those are a fairly small proportion of the problem. They're part of the problem, but most people in in-work poverty aren't in those jobs. <clears throat> they are the people who are serving us in restaurants or cafes. They're on the reception in hotels. They're in the warehouse putting together the boxes for the delivery driver for the drivers and so on it's people in those jobs and there's also a geographical dimension so you've got parts of the country where an enormous proportion of the local economy is dominated by say warehouses by local services which tend to be low paid and low value jobs not low value in terms of what they mean to people low value in the value they bring to the economy and therefore how much you can get paid doing them and so the UK has become dominated by this really unequal labour market where we have lots and lots of high paying jobs, actually. You know, we are leaders in uh, many areas, biotech, science. You know, we have lots of high value jobs, but we also have lots of very low value jobs and not a lot in the middle. So once you go into either the high value bit of the economy where you're doing pretty well, you're pretty secure. Even if you lose your job, you'll get another good one pretty easily. Or you're in the low value bit of the economy where you're cycling in and out of not very good jobs, which are quite often actually high pressured and high stress, but low paid and without a lot of dignity actually for workers as well. So if we wanna create a more just economy, there's probably two things we need to do. One is we need to think about the economy has been designed and it can be redesigned. 
And so we need to purposefully redesign our economy. And the second is that will take lots of different actors coming together. This is not something that can be solved by any one group in society. So there is a big role for government. So I think that we need to reset the labour market. So we need to decide that we are going to focus on quality of jobs, not just quantity of jobs. So I think there are, we need to use the power of regulation to particularly create more security for, for people who are working in low paid jobs. And that's something the government should be doing. But actually, we can also use consumer power to demand more of the businesses that we all buy from. So we can use consumer power to demand that businesses pay the living wage, that they give regular predictable shifts to people, that they treat their workers with dignity. And we can use the kind of softer power of procurement. So when the government, the public sector or our, you know, our employers, when we buy stuff, we have power to decide who we buy from. And do we put conditions on how we spend public money, particularly, that says if you're going to get a lot of public money, then we expect you to pay your workers well. We expect you to train them. We expect you to create career paths so that people don't get stuck at the bottom. We expect you to reach out to communities locally who are shut out of good work and make sure they get opportunities. And we can also use the soft power of things like business support. So it's quite invisible. But there's a whole network across the country of largely publicly funded organisations advising businesses. And actually, we don't use that very much to try and nudge and draw businesses up the value chain. So where you've got businesses that have got a business model that actually works for them commercially, they pay low wages, they have high turnover and they compete on price. There are always businesses in the same sector who take a different approach, who, for instance, compete on customer service and on getting repeat business a lot more. And so they pay their workers more, they train them better, so they give better service. You can use the advice that businesses get to try and nudge them up that value chain to create more employers who are offering good quality work and can afford to pay for that good quality work because you've got higher productivity. So we need all that to happen. We also need, though, other things to happen. We need to redesign other bits of the economy, like the housing market. So we need to redesign the housing market so that we invest heavily in social rented homes, which are low cost, which people need when they're on low incomes. But also we improve the standards in the private rented sector. So there is more security. There are higher standards. People are not driven into evictions and homelessness because they can't keep up with the rent. And we need to, as a society, be willing to pay for a good social security system that all of us can rely on when times are tough. And that is designed to help people, to hold them up, to support them, and is not designed to pressure people into situations which are bad for them, like taking terrible jobs, which aren't going to take them anywhere. I think the key thing about achieving economic justice is bringing together people from different parts of society. So the, the first, actually, the most important group are people in poverty themselves. So people who are in poverty are so often overlooked and marginalised, even by campaigners, even by people who want to make things better for them. And actually, people with direct experience of poverty have immense expertise, not only in the experience of what it's like to be in poverty, but actually in the solutions, in what will work for them, for their communities, to unlock them from poverty. So organisations like the Apple Collective or Citizens UK are organisations which are led by and are consisting of people with direct experience and they are incredibly effective advocates and campaigners who have created change on a local level and a national level. I've also seen really good work done by organisations that work with employers and business. So people like the Living Wage Foundation and TimeWise are organisations who work with employers and business and support and encourage them to, do, to give better wages, better conditions, open up better quality jobs to people who need flexible work. And that demonstrates what can be done by businesses who are commercially successful, but also have a social purpose. I think there's a really big part for cultural actors as well, actually. So the role of popular culture in building public understanding and public awareness is really important. So I've seen the work of the actor Michael Sheen, of the filmmaker uh, Sean McAllister, 
of Farrah Store, who edits Elle magazine, of Marcus Rashford. So all these people who use their platform and often their personal experience to create a movement support for change. And that is what leads politicians to act. And obviously politicians are really important leaders. And I've, I've seen from across the political spectrum, people who have stepped up to lead in this area. So we've seen under the Labour governments of Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, we saw really good progress in reducing pensioner poverty and child poverty. In recent years, I've seen Conservative MPs like Heidi Allen or Stephen Crabb really exercise great moral authority in calling for more investment in social security, better funding for universal credit, things that may not be popular among all of their own party, but they make a very strong case within their own values for why we should be focusing on those things. And we've seen uh, the Scottish government, we've seen the SNP in Scotland, who have made tackling poverty an important part of who they are and introduced something like the Scottish child payment, which is a new social security benefit in Scotland, which will make a real difference to children and families in Scotland. And we've seen charities, so big charities like the Children's Society or the Trussell Trust and little charities like Little Village. Uh, all of what they do, often they will do work that will meet immediate need, but actually they also campaign for justice. They campaign for changes that will make what they do unnecessary. And that's really inspiring. The Living Wage has been a really important initiative over the last decade or so, because we have had the majority of people in poverty now live in a home where at least one person is working. So poverty 20, 30 years ago was concentrated among pensioners and out of work families. It's now concentrated among working families and we have more than four million workers in poverty. And so, of course, one of the factors is that most of those people are stuck in low paid work that has low hourly wages. So the voluntary living wage has been a really important way of starting to push up those wages and it helped to lead to a higher national minimum wage, which the government refers to as the national living wage. So it's helped to create the impetus to push up regulated wages so they are closer to average wages. But I think it's important to say that minimum, rising minimum wages on their own don't get rid of poverty. And there's two reasons for that. So one is that, so if you take the minimum wage as it is at the moment, if you're a single person and you're working full time, you're not supporting kids, you don't have too high costs like rent, you will probably be able to live out of poverty if you're doing a minimum wage job, as long as it's secure and so on. But of course, most people in poverty are not in that position. So as soon as you have children to support, or maybe another adult who can't work full time, or you're in a very high rent situation, or you're disabled and you have higher costs, as soon as you have any of those circumstances, the minimum wage, even though it's got higher, is not going to be enough to free you from poverty. And actually, you know, it's a fundamental thing that employers can't pay people different amounts of money depending on how or what their outgoings are. You can't pay somebody more because they've got three kids as opposed to someone who's got no kids. And that's one of the reasons we have a social security system. So we accept that one of the reasons it was invented by Beveridge after the Second World War was to say we need to top up the wages essentially of people who are working but have outgoings that their wages won't cover. And so one of the things that we've seen in the last decade is the minimum wage has gone up, but the government at the same time was cutting back on social security and actually many families lost more than they gained. But we need both. So we need more employers to be paying the minimum wage and we need social security. But there's a third thing, which is one of the big trends in the last decade or so around in-work poverty is workers not being able to get enough hours of work. So even if their hourly wage isn't too bad, they can't get enough hours of work each week and they can't get predictable enough hours each week to get them to a decent living standard. So that's why the, we've been working with the Living Wage Commission on a new standard, which is the Living Hours Standard. So it's trying to tackle the other side of the quality of work. It's not just pay. It's have you got a contract where you can organise your life around it? So what that's doing is asking employers to sign up to say, offer a minimum number of hours every week that your workers can rely on and that will be enough to take them out of poverty. And that's something which is kind of the next, the next frontier for the living wage movement 
is to say it's not just about wages it's all about the conditions of work that trap people in poverty and we need to change that as well as keep the pressure on with hourly wages so i think the covid pandemic has done three things in relation to economic justice the first is it has made life much much harder for many people who are already struggling so we've seen that both the economic and the health impacts of covid have landed most heavily on people who were already in poverty, were already held back. And we've seen people building up debt, rent arrears. We've seen the impacts on family relationships, on mental health. Many of those things will be with us for long after the pandemic subsides. We've also seen COVID has pretty much undone a decade's worth of progress on narrowing the attainment gap between children from richer and poorer backgrounds in their education. And again, we will be seeing the impacts of that. Those young people will see the impacts of that in getting lower qualifications than they would have done. And that will affect their employment prospects in 20 years time. But I think we have also seen a positive in a sense, which is that COVID has shone a light on some of the injustices which were always there, but which people didn't notice and didn't see. So I think what we've, many people have become aware for the first time, some of them, on just how important low paid workers are to us, our economy, to our daily lives, to those we love, but just how low paid many of those workers are and how insecure they are. So the fact that many people don't get sick pay and therefore can't afford to self isolate, that was always a problem for people in their lives, but suddenly it became part of a public health emergency. So awareness shot up. I think the third thing it's done is it has shown us what is possible when we have enough resolve and enough will. So if you look at some of the actions the government took, particularly in the first few months of COVID, so the furlough scheme protecting jobs, a £20 boost to universal credit, a halt to evictions, none of those things were things that campaigners would have expected to happen, would have really even asked for pre-COVID, and yet they were done really quickly with massive public support. I think we've also seen a lot of employers who had really resisted letting their work their employers work flexibly or remotely suddenly found that you know what loads of jobs can be done flexibly and remotely and I think that what will be what is the kind of challenge the opportunity for all of us is can we harness that sense of possibility and that resolve as we go into the recovery so as the public health crisis subsides as people want to turn back to normal life can we harness all of that to create a new kind of normal life which frees people from poverty, which creates economic justice, which enables people to balance work and care and have a decent living, which creates more security for people in their homes. And I think that there is, it is a real indictment of our society that those who are struggling most were hit hardest, but it is an opportunity for us to say, we won't do that again. We will redesign, not just rebuild what was there before. Yeah, I mean, it's, so we um we quite recently we looked at we looked back at the last decade, kind of pre-COVID to say well what kind of decade has it been, um, and what we really saw when we looked back at it was it was it's been a decade of repeated financial blows for people on low incomes, so kind of think back to the financial crash of two thousand and eight, which obviously affected the whole country uh, and affected people on low incomes, and then when we looked at the recovery from that we chose a we chose a type of recovery which actually continued to hold back people on low incomes so when we the kind of recovery we chose was to have a focus on quantity not quality of employment so we actually saw employment recover really quite quickly and very impressively we kind of bounced back but so many of the jobs that people got back into were these low paid insecure jobs and actually it's in one of the success stories of that recovery was seeing employment rates rise among groups who have been traditionally shut out of the labour market. So you saw many more single parents getting into work, more disabled people getting into work, more carers, more people from some ethnic minority groups that had had difficulty getting work. And that was that's positive to get people into the labour market, but it was those groups who then got stuck at the bottom end of the labour market in these not very good jobs. And similarly with housing, it was quite interesting. So you saw housing supply recover actually and come back but without investment in social housing social rented housing so what you saw was housing supply expand but actually it didn't do anything for the problems at the bottom end of the housing market 
of either quality or insecurity and homelessness or people not being able to afford a decent home. And so one of the things that we've been talking to government about over the last few months has been we need a different kind of recovery this time. We need a recovery which prioritises good quality work, low cost homes. And the other mistake I think we made after the last recovery was the decision the government made to try and reduce public the deficit and public spending before the actual recovery got established. So we saw the government make successive governments make choices to reduce public spending through cuts primarily to spending through cuts to services, cuts to local government and cuts to social security, which meant that just at the point people needed support to get back on their feet, that support was being pulled away. And one of the biggest ones, the there was a four year freeze of working age benefits. So while prices rose in the shops, people's incomes stood still. And that led just to this rising tide of poverty and particularly children and workers being pulled into poverty. And that meant that at the point we came and COVID hit, we had a really already a high level of insecurity, of precariousness, of people who were already in debt, already behind with things, already cutting back. And then you had the blows that came through COVID, which landed on the same people. So one of the things we've been talking to government a lot about is saying there is a different way to do this recovery. We can learn from the past and create a much stronger recovery and a much more equal recovery than we did last time around. Well, I think when we're when you're thinking about what are the choices that face a ch any chancellor or any prime minister or any government when so normally if you're getting into recovery you've had a period where there's been a big recession whether that's caused by the financial crisis or by a health crisis and because when you're in recession government spending goes up you're going into the recovery with a large amount of public debt and a large deficit usually the Chancellor then has two big choices to make. One is how quickly do they try and pay that down? And the second is what are the tools they use to pay it down? So in terms of speed, there's been a really interesting debate happening in the last few months about, you know, the government spending because of COVID has ballooned to a degree that we haven't seen since the Second World War. So there's then a question, and that's true across lots of different countries. So the question then is, how do we view that? Do we view that as similar in similar ways to we view the debt after the Second World War, where actually there was a real consensus that said it's going to take us decades to pay this down and that's okay because we are recovering from a big global event. And that incidentally is interesting enough what more and more economists, what the OECD and other people, the IMF are saying we should do. Or do we view it like a deficit or a debt that would come from a normal recession? like the 90s or the one we had in 2008, where governments across the world were trying to pay that down much more quickly. So that's one set of choices. The other choice, there's essentially two ways that you deal with debt and a deficit. You either cut spending or you raise taxes or you do both. And what we saw after the 2008 recession and then the recovery was the government of the day chose to try and restore the public finances primarily through spending cuts. Now, if you make that choice, that is always gonna land most heavily on people on low incomes and working classes because public spending is skewed towards those areas. So social security, we have a system that's designed to help people on low incomes. Therefore, if you wanna cut it, by definition, you will take money away from people on low incomes. We have, if you look at local government finance, that's, uh, the formula that, that is decided, uh, that decides local government finance takes into account deprivation. That means if you want to restore the public finances by cutting local government money, you will end up cutting more from places with higher poverty because they get more. And it's similar in a lot of other areas. So the choice to reduce the deficit quickly and do it through spending cuts, that is all that would always have led to the pain being felt by people on low incomes and working class people. What we did see after the 2008 recession, though, was at the same time, we actually very weirdly saw tax cuts to people for people on higher incomes. So raising the personal allowance and income tax, which was sold actually as a measure that helps people on low incomes, the vast majority, something like two thirds of the money that's spent on that actually goes to people in the top half of the income distribution. 
Similarly, we saw some uh, rises to the level at which you start paying higher levels of tax. By definition, that only helps people who were already up at around that level. So some of those choices were made and that were always going to lead to people at the bottom getting hit hardest. I think now there is a very different conversation happening, at least. So we have actually seen the current prime minister talk about the fact that we are not going to go back to austerity, talking about not wanting to restore the public finances through spending cuts. I think, though, we will not know until we start seeing probably in next year and the year after, until we see those budgets, we won't know whether they are going to follow that through in reality or whether we will actually see a kind of similar approach with different words. But I think, I mean, what I'm seeing certainly with a lot of commentators is there seems to be a general consensus that it will have to be tax rises that will pay for this more than spending cuts. I mean, if only because we've had a decade of spending cuts and even people who are most enthusiastic about them, I think, accept you can't go much further uh, without really moving outside the public support that you need. So I think we will see tax rises, but we will see an almighty battle over how many and who pay, who experiences those. Um, and that battle will go on for years. So I think, I think the thing about food banks is, so food banks and other charities like them, I think they're in, they are an expression of the compassion that people feel. So they're an expression of people who are seeing need around them and wanting to meet it. Um, but of course, it's not right that anybody should have to rely on charity or the kindness of strangers for essentials. And I think one of the things that's been quite interesting to see in the last few years has been that more and more of the people who are involved in the food bank movement or in other charities have actually wanted to move past that compassion and actually start demanding justice. So I've talked to people in churches particularly uh, who are often informally doing a lot of support. And what they're saying is that, you know, we're supporting people, but the need just keeps growing and growing. You know, the tide keeps coming. And actually, we want to go beyond just meeting need at the immediate point. And we want to be part of the solution. We want to demand the justice, which is everyone should have the dignity of doing a food shop, not going to the food bank. Um, and what we've seen is that this is a cult. The reason more and more people are ending up at food banks is because we've had rising poverty. So we've had a rising tide of poverty. And what you tend to find is that people get pulled into poverty, they get stuck there, they're there for several years, all of their kind of resources get eroded. So they're on a low income, they are often, they exhaust any savings, they get into debt, they ha have relied on family and friends who are often already not in a good place. And so what we've seen in the kind of decade over which you've seen the food bank movement rise, is more people pulled into that situation and the systems that should be preventing people needing charity getting weaker. So we've talked about the cuts from freezes to social security, but also things like the local council schemes, which used to be in every area, a kind of crisis scheme where you could, if you were in crisis for some reason, you could apply for a loan or a grant. Those were at the beginning of the decade those were, first of all, devolved down to local authorities to decide if they had one or not, and if so, what kind, and the money was cut for them. What we've then seen is there's quite a lot of local authorities, about one in eight, I think, don't have one at all. And others have much smaller schemes than they used to, and quite often no longer give out money or grants. They will give things like referrals to food banks, or they will give kind of stuff, beds or whatever. They don't give what people need, which is the money to buy things for themselves. And I think there is, so for me, there is a danger in the growing focus on what people call food poverty or a right to food, because the problem isn't food at all. There's plenty of food in this country. It's just as people can't afford it. And the same people who can't afford to buy food also can't afford to buy their kids shoes that fit and keep the heating on and the lighting on and data for their phones so they can stay in touch with family and services. They can't afford to buy cowpole and toothpaste they can't afford for their children to do an activity where they'll meet other people. And I think there is a real danger for me in uh, kind of focusing in on food as the problem, because then what you do is suggest food is the solution. And actually, it's not, of course, the solution is economic justice. 
it's good jobs and affordable homes and social security and good education and all these things you need to create a just society. That's the solution. And it's interesting. So Trussell Trust quite recently published their new strategy and their new strategy is to uh, abolish themselves. So their new strategy is all about we now want to remove the need for food banks because we it shouldn't become institutionalized. We shouldn't be a country where food banks are an everyday part of our communities and our children's lives. You know, they should be there in, you know, the absolute dire emergencies where something has really gone wrong and someone's fallen through the cracks. They shouldn't be an everyday part of life in many communities across the country. So I think there are two bits of advice I would give to people who want to get involved in activism. I think the first is you have to think big, but campaign smart. So you need to think about the big changes you want to see. You need to dream about a different world. And then you need to pick really carefully and smartly what will be your the things you will campaign for every step along the way. Because if you try and achieve everything, you generally achieve nothing. I think the second thing is you have to seek the common ground, not the high ground. So I think that too many campaigners speak really only effectively to people who already agree with them. So too many campaigners use the kind of language and arguments and ideas which their kind of core, their base love, but which are either incomprehensible or alienating to everyone else, including to people who actually could be won over. And actually, we aren't going to create any kind of big change in the country unless we take the public with us. And that means using the language that the public can engage with. It means speaking in ways that reach out to people and emphasise our common values, not the things that we disagree with. And it means having the discipline to stick with the common ground and not be tempted to plant our flag on the high ground and disparage everybody else. Because we will only create change if we take large numbers of people with us, not just our kind of the core activists to whom it all seems so obvious and everyone should just do it. You have to reach out to other people and speak in a way that will connect with people who don't already agree with you. For more podcasts in this series, search for Journey to Justice on any podcast platform. If you're interested in education for economic justice or community action, visit www.economicinjustice.org.uk to make the most of our resources.